22 years ago uh, tomorrow, 38-year-old Brian Sweeney boarded United Flight 175 uh, from Logan Airport in Boston, Massachusetts, bound for LAX, Los Angeles International Airport in Southern California. Now, Brian, uh, he grew up in, in New England. He graduated from uh, Boston University in 1986, the, the same year that Kathy and I graduated from Grove City College. And uh, while he was there, he uh, played four years of Division I uh, football for the BU Terriers. After he graduated, he joined the United States Navy. Uh, he went to flight school, uh, became an F-14 radar intercept operator. That's the guy in the back seat. That's a goose for those of you who uh, are into Top Gun. Uh, he served in the Persian Gulf War, and he was subsequently honorably discharged from the Navy as a result of becoming partially paralyzed in an accident. After he uh, finished up with the, with the Navy, he began working uh, in the defense industry. And ultimately, he secured a job at a defense contractor by the name of Brandy's Associates. And uh, although his primary work assignment was on the West Coast, Brandy's allowed, uh, they were ahead of the time back then, they allowed uh, Brian to uh, work three weeks out of the month in his home in Massachusetts, where he lived with his wife of two years, Julia, who was a public school teacher. And then on the fourth week of the month, he would uh, board a flight from uh, Boston and fly to Los Angeles, spend a, a week in Southern California doing work there at the company, and, uh, and then he would head back. And so this is the reason why he is on flight 175 this day. And little did Brian know that that morning as he kissed his wife goodbye, it would be the last time that he was able to kiss her goodbye. At 8.42 a.m., about 28 minutes into his flight, five terrorists took over command of the 767. Several of them stormed the cockpit. Uh, they killed the pilot and the co-pilot. They took over the controls. They uh, changed the uh, direction of the aircraft from flying to Los Angeles to flying towards the south tower of the World Trade Center. The remaining uh, terrorists they forced all of the passengers into the back of the airplane. And as the, as the minutes passed by, it became extraordinarily clear to Brian and several other passengers that, that these hijackers weren't normal hijackers, that, that they were on a, a suicide mission. And it was at this point, at exactly 8.59 in the morning, only five minutes before the 767 is going to smash into the South Tower, that Brian called his wife on the little air phone that was in the seat in front of him. Jules, this is Brian. Uh, this is on an airplane that's been hijacked. And things don't go well. I'm looking good. I just want you to know I absolutely love you. I want you to do good. So happy to find things to my parents and everybody. And I just totally love you. And uh, I'll see you in Denver. Hi, babe. I call you. And you hold out this hope, especially for someone like Brian, who, um, this is a, a silly way to put it, but he was a warrior. And you just didn't believe that something like this could take him away. So you, you hold out this hope until it's validated somehow. 
and all I needed was that message and I think he very selflessly left it um, I don't think he left it until he knew that he wasn't coming home when I got it um, it was just so Brian and it was it was his his final um, request of me and his final way to let me know that he was going to be okay and that he believed that he'd see me again and that's all I needed to know and it was um, it was I'm thankful for it so thankful for that message because at least I know without a shadow of a doubt what he was thinking um, the calmness in his voice soothed me um, so I do have that and um, and because it's on a message I'm able to share it with anybody that wants to hear it and um, it's very powerful he made very powerful statements with that message with that recording Brian gave a, a very special gift to his wife, Julie. And in the process, he gave a very special gift to those like us who would hear his final words. For, for he showed us that how we face death reflects the way that we lived life. And that, brothers and sisters, that's the big idea for this morning. That, that, that how we face death reflects the way that you and I live life. And we're going to see that here in Paul's final words to, to Timothy and his final recorded words uh, ever that are contained here in our Bible. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 9 through 22 uh, this morning. If uh, you don't have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, there's Bibles around the tables uh, please feel free to get one. I uh, ask a neighbor to pass one down to you. I believe they're on page 996 in the Bibles that we provide. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. Uh, if you're able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, uh, Tim or Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Tross. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesimus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. But do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with you. Grace be with you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. We have come to the final words that the Apostle Paul has written to Timothy. And what is remarkable about this is the intimacy of Paul's words. Up to this point, he has shared everything that Timothy needed to know about uh, dealing with false teachers uh, and, and the sufficiency of, of Scripture. He, he's taught him about remaining steadfast in the midst of suffering, preaching God's word, caring for, for God's church. He, he's communicated all of these, these tasks, these thoughts that, that Timothy needed to do. And, and now as Paul prepares for his imminent death in a Roman prison, in a way similar to how Brian and Sweeney prepared for his imminent death in an airliner, the Apostle Paul seeks to focus Timothy on that which is the most important. And brothers and sisters, that is what the prospect of death does. It brings clarity to our lives. It helps us to uh, discern between that which distracts us and that which is ultimately essential in our lives. It causes us to shift our focus from, from the things that are temporal to, to the things that are ultimately eternal. And it reminds us that how we face death always flows from how you and I actually live out our lives. And, and there are a number of, of things that we're going to see here today, and these are, are things that help us to have a proper perspective on the, on the way that we should live, because having a proper perspective in death requires that we have a proper perspective in life. And, and, and Paul shows this to Timothy in four different ways. He shows him a, a proper perspective on people. You and I need to have a, a proper understanding of relationships, basically. He also shows us that we need to have a, a proper perspective on possessions, on what we do with possessions, how we accumulate possessions, how we give possessions away. He also tells us, he gives us a proper perspective on the purpose of our lives. Why are we here? Why has God created us? What is the purpose that, that, that we are on this planet right now, sucking up oxygen? Why has God put us here? And finally, there's a proper perspective on the promises of God. So let's look at each one of these briefly this morning. A proper perspective on people or relationships. Look again at verse 9. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. You see, as Paul wraps up his letter, what does he want more than anything else? He wants Timothy's presence. That's what he's looking for. He desires Timothy to be with him. And when does he want Timothy to be there? He says in verse 21, do your best to come before winter. Paul understands that, that, that time is running out. 
that he is living on borrowed time, that, that it's just a matter of time before Nero actually pulls him out of that prison and actually has his head cut off. So he understands time is running out, and, and he, he uh, knows that when winter comes, it's very difficult back in uh, the first century to travel around the periphery of the Mediterranean Sea in the middle of winter. Things are, are cold, and, and the, the, the sea is... is tumultuous and so if timothy doesn't get there before winter he's going to have to wait until spring and why does he want timothy because people are important relationships are important we come to, together to to worship god and we do that what we come collectively why because relationships are important in life. People are important. Paul is suffering. He is in prison. He is basically alone. The only person who is with him is Luke, the physician and historian who wrote the Gospel of Luke, who eventually will write the book of Acts. Luke has been a faithful friend. He has been with Paul from the very beginning. He was there when Paul was first in prison. He's been with Paul through some of the most challenging times. So it's not as if Paul is not grateful that Timothy or that, that Luke is with him. But he wants more. And whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, the fact of the matter is God created you and me for relationship. We have been created for relationship. We have not been created to, to be on our own little island, to, to isolate ourselves from other people. Uh, regardless of whether we've been hurt by other people or, or what has happened to us, we are created to be in relationship. We were never meant to be loner, loners. From the very first pages of the Bible, what do we read? Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. When God considers everything that he created, he said everything was good. But he looked at the aloneness of man and said, this is not good. So God in his graciousness created woman out of man so that they could be companions, helpmates, and friends. And, and, and the need for companionship, folks, it, it flows through the pages of Scripture. One of the most beautiful passages in his Ecclesiastes, it says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he fall, falls and has not another to lift him up again. And again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Regardless of who we are, we need other people in our lives. But there is a problem. Relationships, folks, they're messy. Right? They're messy. People, people have said, you know, it'd be great to be a, a pastor if it wasn't for all the people, right? I mean, that's, uh, people say those things. But the fact of the matter is, is you want to be in relationship, but relationships are messy. And the reason that, that sometimes we avoid relationships is because they've been messy in the past. 
That's the way that it works. Now, now they're messy for a couple different reasons. Reason number one, people, including you and including me, are sinful. Look at Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So, so here is Demas. Demas is mentioned three times by Paul in the New Testament. He's mentioned first in Colossians, second in Philemon. In both cases, Paul speaks highly of him. That, that, that Paul's happy with him. It seems like things are going well. But then something happens. Paul is in prison in Rome, and Demas has, has deserted him. The Greek word that has been translated deserted, it means to totally abandon, utterly forsake, leave in dire straits. When Paul needs Demas the most is when Demas bolts. And why does he bolt? Because he loved the world more than he loved Paul. And for that matter, he loved the world more than he loved the gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, that is a serious problem because according to 1 John 2, loving the world is a very bad choice to make. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but is from the world. You see, love of the world is incompatible with love for God. And, and, and many of us know this because we, we, have, we have seen people in our lives who, who have a love for the world. And when they have a love for the world, they go and they do crazy things. We, some of us have, have lost spouses because, because they love the world more than they loved us. Some of us have lost kids because they loved the world more than they loved us. Some of us ha have, have lost people that have been extracted out of our lives, not because they wanted to be extracted out of our lives, but because other people loved the world. And they hurt them and removed them from our lives. In re relationships, they are messy. But Demas wasn't the only worldly person to cause pain for Paul. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, we don't know anything about Alexander other than the fact that he's a coppersmith. But we can deduce a couple things about Alexander. Number one, uh, coppersmiths, one of the things that, that they were good at making in those days was idols. Coppersmiths created idols. And if you remember in Acts, Paul, Paul goes and, and he speaks against uh, idols and, and people who make idols. And, and the union of all the metal workers get upset with Paul and they're, they're going to kill him and run him out of Dodge. And, and perhaps Alexander is, is one of these guys. And, and so what happens is Alexander has done things to Paul most undoubtedly, I shouldn't say undoubtedly, probably because Paul spoke against his trade to hurt Paul. And folks, relationships are hard because people who have professed Jesus at one point who walk away leave us. 
And because people who haven't professed Jesus, they come against us. But they're also hard for a second reason. You see, God sometimes, he calls people to other places. You know, it's not because they've done something bad or something hurtful to us or sinful, but God comes along and he desires to take people to different places. Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and Tychus I have sent to Ephesus. You see, while, while Dumas has, has fallen in love with the world and abandoned Paul, Crescens, he goes to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Tychus to Ephesus. And, and each of these cases, they're not abandoning Paul. They're following God's call on their lives. And they're doing exactly what Paul would command them to do when he desires for them to be obedient to Jesus. And Jesus comes along and says what? Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have told you. These men are leaving Paul to continue spreading the gospel, which is a good thing. But folks... It is not an easy thing when people you are close to leave to follow God's will for their lives. How many times this year have we brought people up here and I wept? Good people who, who God has called away. It's hard. You, 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 you begin relationships with these people Jenny and Wilson Chen, they, they, they come, they bring their wonderful three boys, they, they bless our family like crazy, you know, they move away to Florida. Dwayne and Angela Williams, and, and their countless children that they had, I think they had seven of them, if I'm not mistaken. You know, Dwayne was in my men's group on, on Wednesday morning. I really, in the short period of time that they were with us, I, I, I fell in love with them. And God calls them away to Virginia. Before them, it's Sister Cookie to, to Oklahoma. It's the Angbrecks to Florida, or I mean to, to Indiana, the Rosignols to Florida. And it's just the list just goes on and on and on. I, I hate when I get an email. It's just like, God's taking us somewhere. I'm like, no, you can't go. Not fair. Tell them no. Tell God no. Be disobedient, please. And, and, and even wonderful members of our church family, sometimes they're, they're called just away two miles. I, I mean, here you've got Angela Blair and, and who, who, who leaves here to what? Go help the chapel. I didn't want Angela to go away. She's awesome. But Larry needed her, and so it was a blessing. There's others who've, who've gone with John at Brookfield Bible. I mean, you know, None of these moves are bad. Nobody's abandoning us. Nobody's leaving mad. They, they simply move on because God has different plans for them. But folks, it's hard. And, and, and if, if we would just say like, yeah, I'm not going to enter into relationship with somebody because God may take them away. We're going to be very, very lonely people. Now, in the midst of this, in the midst of this pain, whether it's because of sin or simply because God has called them away, God does some other really cool things. 
And, and, and sometimes what God does is, is he takes people who have, have left under bad circumstances and he restores them. And that's the case with Mark. Look at verse 11. He says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, that would be John Mark, and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for this ministry. Now, this is an extremely telling statement right here. Because years earlier, when Paul was on his first missionary journey, John Mark was with Paul. And somewhere along the the way, John Mark decides, I'm out of Dodge. We don't know the reason why, but, but but he leaves Paul. And, and, and later on, uh, Paul's going to embark on his second missionary journey. And it, his buddy Barnabas comes up and says, Hey, I got this cousin of mine. His name is John Mark. I want him to go along with us. Paul's like, Yeah, that's not happening. He's not coming along with us. He, he abandoned me on the first one, you know, you know, the whole Gomer Pyle thing. You remember, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me kind of thing. That's what Paul is, Paul is thinking. And so he's like, that's not going to happen. So uh, Paul goes with a, a Silas on his journey. Barnabas takes John Mark, and, and they part ways. But something happens over the course of the next 10 years. God does something amazing, obviously, because somehow that bad blood between Paul and John Mark gets corrected. And now not only does Paul want Timothy by his side, but he wants John Mark by his side. And brothers and sisters, what does that teach us? It teaches us that God does restore things. If we humble ourselves, God can restore things that have been broken. It also teaches us that that relationships, while they're messy, they're extraordinarily important. And at the end of the day, when we're facing death squarely in the eye, we want people to be with us. We want our loved ones to come together. When, when, when someone's passing away, people, they move heaven and earth, what, to, to get their kids come home from Australia to be beside dad who's passing away. We see that all the time. But why do we wait until death's doorstep to surround ourselves with the people that we love And why do we wait to to try to restore relationships that have been broken along the way? You see, what what this reminds us of of what's going on here is that that we need to live our lives as if we could die at any moment. And it helps us to to give a better perspective on people and relationships. We need to invest our lives in other people even when it's potentially hurtful. We need to, to seek out community. Because we weren't created to be alone. We, we need to, to show hospitality, not to just those who are like us, but to, to people that are wildly different than us. We need to be reconciled to those who we've hurt. And we need to be reconciled to those who've hurt us. And when God moves people out of our lives... We need to bless them and allow them to go knowing that God's plan is far greater than ours. Now, how we face death also shows us that we need to have a proper perspective 
on possessions. Look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books and above all the parchments. You see, when it comes to possessions, as Paul is at the end of his life, he wants three things. He's looking for his, his cloak. It's going to be this heavy wool coat, basically. Uh, Rome is a cold place in the wintertime. The temperature hovers uh, in the upper 30s to the mid 40s. It's crazy damp. And, and he, he wants something to warm his body. Who can fault him for that? His books, which were probably skulls of papyrus that undoubtedly contained portions of the Old Testament, they, they were there to what? Not to comfort his, his body, but to comfort his soul. And, and these parchments, which would have, he probably have written Jesus' words or deeds, or maybe they were blank, so he could write additional letters to his disciples. He wants those, what, to stimulate his mind. So he's caring about his soul, he's caring about his mind, and he's caring about his body. And the older that I get, the closer to death that I come, the more I realize, the less I actually need. The stuff that was important to me when I was younger, not really important anymore. And I saw this last year when, when my mom and dad, they, they were moving out of their, their like 2,600 square foot townhouse uh, into a, a little one bedroom apartment at Messiah Village. And, and my, my mom and dad over the years had accumulated a lot of stuff and they had, a lot of it was nice furniture they had spent a lot of money for and and they're, they're just like unloading everything. And, and I can remember, they, they had a dining room suit. And, and you, you know, you had to grow up, you, you know, you had to come, uh, you know, if you're, you're, you know, in your mid-20s now or mid-30s right now, this stuff you don't even want. But, but in my day, like, you wanted a nice dining room suit. And you wanted, like, a little hutch and a, you know, a thing to put all your china in and stuff like that. And you're like... We got China for our wedding. Who gets China for the wedding anymore? Nobody does, right? So here are my parents. They have this crazy expensive dining room suit. I mean, probably, probably pay like $8,000 for it at some point. And I can remember loading this into people's truck. And I'm like, Mom, what did they buy that dining room suit for? $400. Like, that's not a good return on your investment. But isn't that how it works? I mean, there's all of this stuff. You know, the house is full of clothes and basement loaded with Christmas decorations and party supplies and stuff from my grandparents that, that nobody wants to get rid of. But you can't keep it. You certainly can't take it with you. And they kept what was really important, and they got rid of the rest. And how would our lives be different? If we accumulated only the possessions that we really, really needed. I can remember when we went through Financial Peace University, Dave Ramsey had a, a statement. He says, you know what? We buy things that we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. And isn't that the reality? You know, if we would be wise about our possessions God could do amazing things. How much more generous could we be? Not necessarily the living water, but the people in need. God drops people in need in front of all of us all the time. We could be generous. How much less financial stress will we have? 
I, I, I can remember, it, I had a friend by the name of Dave, a senior year in college. Uh, it's crazy, like, they're, one, of the, one of the clubs was hawking credit cards, you know, like, give, give a, a graduating college student a credit card. Terrible idea. My, my buddy Dave, and, and that day CDs were a big deal. He bought like $2,000 worth of CDs on his credit card. And he used those, what, used those as coasters now, right? I mean, they're, they're worthless. And, and he had all this financial stress. Why? But if he wouldn't have bought all that stuff, he wouldn't have nearly that stress. And how much joy might we experience? You see, because when we have a proper perspective on, on possessions, it gives us freedom now and in the future. In addition to having this proper or perspective on people and possessions, wow, that's a tongue twister. We see that how we face death reveals whether or not we've got a proper perspective on the purpose for living. Look at verses 16 and 17. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. How very sad. But all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. In other words, I'm not going to hold this against people. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I was talking to a friend uh, a while back who... Uh, Spent some, some time in prison, lost pretty much everything that he had. Lost his family. He said to me, you know what, Mike? I needed to have all of that stripped away from me so that I could know how very important God was to me. And God has done an amazing work in my friend's life. But it's a reminder that God's plans and his purposes in our lives must be the most important thing to us. That where he takes us, where, that, that, that we are to follow. Now, what must it be like in your time of greatest need to have everybody desert you? What must that be like? How painful must that be? But, but here, everybody has, has deserted him. He, Paul knows what it feels like. At some point after his arrest by the Romans, uh, he experienced what you and I would probably call a, a preliminary hearing. He's left alone to defend himself. We don't know the charges, but in Paul's day, one of the things that they accused Christians of, number one, was that, that they were atheists because they weren't worshiping the idols. Number two, that they were cannibals because they said that they ate the 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 uh, body and blood of Jesus Christ. And, and while that's a stretch, you know, dictatorships aren't known for their common sense, folks. For some people, being abandoned in their time of need makes them bitter and angry. But that's not the case with Paul because he says, make it not be charged against them. Instead of becoming bitter, Paul became even more certain of God's plan for his life. And it was through him that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be fully proclaimed so that the Gentiles might hear. In re reality, Paul's not defending himself. He's defending the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. That's what he's ultimately defending. That's why he's in prison. And God, in allowing Paul to be arrested and tried, he gives Paul the ability to speak the truth of the gospel to people he could have never, ever spoken to before. Because now he's in prison. He's got a, he's got a captive audience. The, the guards got to listen to him. The other inmates have to listen to him. He's got this incredible opportunity. And I'm wondering, have we ever asked ourselves, why in the world are we actually here? God, what is your purpose for my life? Am I just supposed to randomly go through life, God, just doing whatever I want, whatever feels good? Am I, am I here to just live for myself? Or am I called to, to live for something that is much greater than this, something eternal, something redemptive, something that, that, that blesses other people, things that ultimately honor God? And may we not wait to the end of our lives to figure that out. God's got a purpose for every one of his children. We need to listen to him. And, and, and we need to figure out now, and, and we do that by asking God to reveal us. Now, and when he does this, I'm here to tell you, it's going to be terrifying. I can remember when when. when I was leaving AMP and, and going to seminary. People were telling me, oh, you were just so brave, Mike. You were so courageous. And I'm telling them, like, surrendering to a higher power is not courage. That's what I was doing. I, I was surrendering. I had zero choice. I was just simply surrendering to the call that God had placed on my life. And it doesn't have to be a call to full-time ministry. Every one of, God's got a call in your life, and sometimes we just stay stuck where we're at because it seems comfortable. But the reality is, it's not comfortable. It's uncomfortable. Because God will ratchet up the heat, and he will continue to ratchet up the heat. It's, so it takes us out of our comfort zone. It's going to stretch us in ways that we don't want to be stretched. And that's a good thing. I have a, a friend in, who's in, in, high, in political office, and I, I've been challenging them recently just about the, the state of things. And they said, Mike, you know what I don't like about you and I do like about you? Is you are stretching me and I do not like it. And I'm like, I'm not stretching you. I'm just simply calling you to be true to that which you profess in your life. And I expect you to do the same thing to me. You know, we, all of us, we claim to be Christians. And then if we're doing stuff that doesn't align with being a Christian, would someone please come to us and stretch us? I would much rather be held accountable by, by some human being than the God of the universe at the end. And it's probably going to be partial when he shows it to you. God rarely shows you what the end's going to look like. He rarely ever does that. It's like Abraham, like, just follow me. Okay, I'm going to follow 
and uh, you're going to Egypt. All right, I'm going to Egypt. I mean, you're going here. You're going there. I, I mean, I, I can remember when we were leaving for seminary. That's all I knew. I had no idea where we were going to be, what we were going to do. I didn't have a clue. Now, 26 years later, Kath, I mean, I would have never thought about this. And if God would have shown me this, I wouldn't have believed him. And I can tell you the other thing, if, if God would have showed me, you know what, Mike, you're going to get a little church in the country with 15 people who all have the same last name, I wouldn't have gone. I needed, and God, if God would have shown me the pain over the years, I would have never done it. I would have never done it. But he, he, he calls us and we follow, and he just gives us a little bit of information. But, but, but how do we do any of that, though? How do we have the courage to take this risk to follow God's purposes in our lives? Well, Paul shows us in verse 18. He says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, having a proper perspective on our purpose demands that we have a proper perspective on God's promises. And, and that's why Paul can do it. Paul realizes that he can't rescue himself, that he needs God. He's not getting out of this Roman jail on his own, and he's not going to be able to save himself from being uh, executed. And even if he could, Paul, like you and me, is going to die one day. We cannot rescue ourselves from that. But he doesn't despair because he knows that Jesus is going to rescue him from what? Every evil deed. And as I looked at that, I thought to myself, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is I need rescued from the evil deeds that people do to me. But you know where I need more of a rescue from? The evil deeds I do to myself and others. And, and, and this is the promise of God, that Jesus will, will ultimately save him, redeem him, and draw him into God's heavenly kingdom. Paul has nothing to lose with death. He's got everything to gain. Not because of the work that, that he's done in his life, because of, but of the work of what Jesus has done. And when you and I figure that out, when we feel, figure out we can't save ourselves, we simply just need to do what God is calling us to do and trust that he will be faithful in his promises, that changes everything. And when we do that, there will come a day when we are drawing our last breath. And we will have no doubt in our mind where we are going. We will be able to look death in the eye and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Because we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he secures us. And whether we're in an airplane that is about to fly into a building, or whether we're 98 years old and our heart is just wearing out, we need not be afraid because we can trust in the promises of God. Because God is good, 
and God is faithful. Now let me wrap things up with this. Uh, we, we're done. This is it, this is it for Timothy. We're, we're finishing up. We're going to start a, a new series uh, in the next week. Uh, it's going to be something that we're calling Genuine Church. And, and as we, we roll out of Timothy and see how the church was supposed to operate, we, we want to talk about what does it mean to actually be a genuine church? What does that look like? And, and maybe you're, you're someone who's here for the very first time and you're, you're trying to find a church family or whatever, and whether it's living water or become some other place, over the course of the, the next 10 weeks or so, we want to give you characteristics of, of what a genuine church is. We're going to talk about a church that, that is committed to God's word, that is committed to preaching and teaching, that is committed to prayer and discipleship and holiness, that's committed to worship and generosity, that's committed to the, the ordinances of the, of the Lord's Supper and baptism, that, that's committed to, to the community, the internal community, to fellowship and pastoral care, that's committed to, to the outside community that's filled with evangelism and missions and apologetics that wants to do good works, that wants to be about transforming the world. And so that's, we're going to spend the next 10 weeks talking about that. And then after that, in the new year, we're going to talk about what should we actually look like. What, what, what aren't the 10 characteristics? You know, we're going to cover the 10 characteristics of a genuine church. But then we're going to cover eight characteristics of what does it look like to be a genuine Christian. What, what, what are we actually supposed to look like? Rather than just kind of, you know, winging it, we're, we're gonna, what does God say about being a genuine Christian? One of them is going to be a repentant person. That we understand our sin and that we repent of it. That's going to be one of them. There's a, several other ones. We'll save them for later on. So that's the, the, the plan. Uh, I'm going to pray uh, for the offering uh, for a moment. And uh, in the meantime, uh, after I pray, I'm going to take a minute to fill out my communication card because uh, I haven't done that yet. And uh, we're going to have you fill out yours, and you can collect your, if you're going to do the ESL thing or want information, drop that in the worship, or the offering basket. And uh, while we're doing the whole offering thing, uh, the worship team's going to come back up. They're going to sing one more song uh, during the offering, and then we'll have a closing song, and then uh, we'll uh, let you out of here. So let me pray. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for the truth of your word. We pray, dear Jesus, that you would uh, conform us to your image. Lord God, that we would take seriously uh, how we are to live. And Lord, that we might live rightly now so that when we face death, we can do it with confidence and grace. Lord, trusting you all along that you are good and faithful. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this offering that we're about to receive and we're about to give. Uh, Lord, would you help us to be a, a generous people? Thank you for those who uh, give in person, for those who give online, for those, Heavenly Father, who, who mail in gifts. And uh, Lord, would you help Living Water to be a crazy, generous church. Help our leadership team to be wise stewards of these resources. And may you always be glorified in all things. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.